Chapter number two of Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillette. The Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers, as an organization, dates from the spring of 1836, when the Alamo had fallen before the onslaught of the Mexican troops and the frightful massacre had occurred. General Sam Houston organized among the Texan settlers in the territory a troop of 1,600 mounted riflemen. This company, formed for the defense of the Texan borders, was the original Texas Ranger unit, and it is interesting to note that the organization from its very inception to the present moment has never swerved from that purpose, the protection of Texan borders. Whether such protection be against the Indian, the bandit, or marauding Mexicans from beyond the Rio Grande, this little troop of rangers won everlasting laurels in its stand against Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. When the Republic of Texas was organized in December 1837, the new state found herself with an enormous frontier to protect. To the south was the hostile Mexico, while to the west and northwest roved the Indian and the bandit. To furnish protection against such enemies and to form the nucleus of a national standing army, the ranger troop was retained. During the seven years that Texas had to maintain her own independence before she was admitted into the American Union, her rangers repelled hordes of Mexicans, fought the murderous Apaches, Comanches, and Kiowas, and administered justice on a wholesale plan to a great number of outlaws and ruffians that had flocked pell-mell into the new republic from the less attractive parts of the United States. So vital was the service rendered by the rangers in protecting the lives and property of the settlers along the frontiers of the state that Texas retained 1,200 rangers as mounted police for patrol of the Mexican border and as a safeguard against the savage redskins of the Southwest. When the Civil War broke out between the North and the South, Texas was drawn into the conflict on the side of the Confederacy. General Con Terry, an old ranger, organized a famous body of men known as Terry's Texas Rangers. This command was composed almost exclusively of ex-rangers and frontiersmen. From Bull Run to Appomattox, this ranger troop rendered gallant service and lost 75% of its original muster role. General Sherman in his memoirs, speak admiringly of the bravery of the rangers at the Battle of Shiloh. Return to peace and the days of reconstruction did not do away with the necessity for the service that could only be rendered by the ranger. Banditry, Indian uprisings and massacres, cattle thievery, all flourished for the bad man expected the post-war turmoil would protect him from punishment for his misdeeds. He was to be undeceived, for the rangers effectively taught him 
that they were in the state for the purpose of protecting lives and property, and right royally did they perform that duty. From 1868 to 1873, the ranger companies were gradually reduced from 1,000 to about 300 men. The federal government adopted a most unfortunate policy toward the Indians after the war. The tribes were removed to reservations and rationed as public charges. Unscrupulous dealers, in their desire for gain, illegally sold firearms to the Indians, and whenever a redskin massacred a frontiersman, he was sure to capture good weapons, so that they soon became well-armed and very expert in handling their new weapons. As no attempt was made to confine them to the reservation limits, the Redskins, under their native chiefs, were always sneaking off and raiding West Texas. These marauders stole thousands of horses and cattle and did not hesitate to murder and scalp the defenseless people along the frontier. Numbers of women and children were carried off as captives, a very small proportion of which were subsequently ransomed. Repeated complaints to Washington brought no redress. Indeed, some of the government officials calmly declared that the Indians were doing no harm. It was white men, disguised as redskins, that caused the trouble. In 1874, conditions along the frontier had become so acute that the need for an organized mounted police for the protection of the settlers against the continued Indian raids became apparent. As in the past, the state looked again to her rangers. Early in 1874, during the administration of Governor Richard Koch, the first Democratic governor since secession, the legislature appropriated 300000 for frontier defense, thus authorizing the formation of the Texas Rangers as now constituted. The governor immediately issued a call for 450 volunteers. These were formed into six companies of 75 men each. Each of these units was officered by a captain and a first and second lieutenant. The companies were designated A, B, C, D, E, and F and received the official name of the Frontier Battalion of Texas Rangers. Major John B. Jones of Corsicana, Texas, was commissioned major of the command. At this time, the captains received a salary of $100 per month, lieutenants $75, sergeants $50, and corporals and privates $40. Subsequently, as the legislature continually sliced into the ranger appropriation, the pay of the private was reduced to only $30 a month, a mere pittance for the hazardous service demanded of them. Early in 1874, the force took the field and each company was assigned a definite territory along the frontier. Company A, being the northernmost company, was camped on the main fork of the Brazos River. Company F, the southernmost, was stationed on the Nueces River. The remaining four companies were posted along the line between the two commands mentioned about 125 miles apart, so that the battalion of 450 men was required to cover a frontier of between five and 600 miles. Major Jones was a very able commander 
and quickly won the confidence of his men and of the people along the border he was sent to protect. The frontiersmen cooperated with him in every way possible, sending runners to the various ranger camps whenever an Indian trail was found or a bunch of horses stolen. During the very first six months of its existence, nearly every company in the battalion had had an Indian fight, and some of them two or three. This command finally cleared the Texas frontier of the Redskins and then turned its attention to the other pests of the state, thieves, bandits, and fugitives from justice. In this work, the ranger rendered service second to none and became, in an incredibly short time, the most famous and the most efficient body of mounted police in the world. Between 1865 and 1883, the Texas Rangers followed 128 Indian raiding parties and fought the Redskins in 84 pitched battles. During the same period, they recovered 6,000 stolen horses and cattle and rescued three citizens carried off by Indians. In this period, 12 Rangers were killed. Despite this record of service, the legislature at Austin could not always be made to see the advantages, nay the necessity, for Ranger Force, and it was continually tinkering with appropriations for the support of the force. When the appropriation was small, the command was reduced to keep within the expenditure doled out by the parsimonious Solons and recruited to full strength whenever the lawmakers could be prevailed upon to increase the annual ranger budget. By 1885, conditions had changed. Texas was no longer endangered by Indians, for the rangers had done much to convert the Red Devils into good Indians, that is, into dead ones. Although the Indians had utterly disappeared from the state, the activities of the rangers did not cease. The white, bad man, who had stirred up the first Indian troubles, now began to plunder and murder his own race and indulge in every form of lawlessness. From hunting the murderous redskins, the rangers became now stalkers of the man-killers and those who despoiled their neighbors of their property. The local legal authorities could not or would not handle this tax themselves, so the rangers were made peace officers and given the right of arrest without warrant in any part of the state. They then became mounted constables to quell disorder, prevent crime, and bring criminals to justice and assist the duly constituted authorities in every way possible. This new work was less romantic than the old Indian warfare, but was every bit as dangerous and as necessary in the building up of the fast-developing state. As in every other task assigned him, the ranger did his duty fearlessly and well. Between 1889 and 1890, the rangers made 579 arrests, among them 76 murderers. With the coming of the railroads, the rangers began to use them, as they permitted speed and the covering of greater distances than were possible on horseback. Moreover, commands could be dispatched from one part of the state to another as occasion demanded. This greater mobility led to larger usefulness and increasing number of arrests by the ranger forces. The outbreak of the Spanish-American War found the ranger ready and anxious for service in the defense of the Union. 
Large numbers of them were enlisted in the world-famous Rough Riders. I have heard from the lips of reliable rangers, declared General Miles in speaking of the ranger service in Cuba, tales of daring that are incomparable. It is indeed too bad that the world knows so little about those marvelous men. There have been hosts of men among the Texas Rangers who were just as nervy as David Crockett, Travis, or Bowie at the Alamo. Thanks to her Rangers, Texas is now one of the most law-abiding, most orderly states in the Union. And today, more than 46 years since the organization of the battalion, the state still maintains a tiny force of rangers numbering 63 officers and men. In 1920 through 1921, the battalion was composed of a headquarters company and companies A, C, D, E, and F. As in the beginning of its history, the force is stationed along the frontier. The headquarters company, under command of Captain J.P. Brooks, was stationed at Austin and used for emergency calls. Company A, stationed at Presidio and commanded by Captain Jerry Gray, patrols the border between El Paso, Presidio, and Jeff Davis counties and the backcountry southward. Company E, Captain J.L. Anders, patrols the line of Presidio and Brewster counties to the line of Terrell and Valverde counties and eastward. Company F, under Captain W.W. Davis, was stationed at Del Rio and covered the line from Terrell and Valverde counties down the river to the line between Maverick, Demet, and Webb counties and the back country. Under the command of Captain William Ryan, Company C was located at Laredo and patrolled the line of Maverick, Demet, and Webb counties to the line of Zapata and Star counties and the back country, while Company D, stationed at Brownsville under Captain W.L. Wright, patrols from the line of Zapata and Star counties down the Rio Grande to its mouth and the adjacent back country. Sketchy as has been this history, it will show a ranger record of continuous duty throughout the 46 years of his existence in guarding the lives, the liberty, and the property of Texas citizens. And the ranger has been content to perform his duty unheralded and almost unsung. Performance of duty, it matters not where it may lead him, into whatever desperate situation or howsoever dangerous the thing demanded, has always been the slogan of the organization. For courage, patriotic devotion, instant obedience, and efficiency, the record of the Texas Ranger has been equaled by no body a constabulary ever mustered. Though formed into military units and officered as a soldier, the ranger is not a military man, for scant attention is paid to military law and precedent. The state furnished food for the men, forage for their horses, ammunition, and medical attendants. The ranger himself must furnish his horse, his accoutrements, and his arms. There is, then, no uniformity in the matter of dress, for each ranger is free to dress as he pleases, and in the garb experience has taught him most convenient for utility and comfort. A ranger, as any other frontiersman or cowboy, usually wears good heavy woolen clothes of any color that strikes his fancy. 
Some are partial to corduroy suits, while others prefer buckskin. A felt hat of any make and color completes his uniform. While riding, a ranger always wore spurs and very high-heeled boots to prevent his foot from slipping through the stirrup. For both the ranger and the cowboy ride with the stirrup in the middle of the foot. This is safer and less fatiguing on a long ride. For arms, the ranger after 1877 carried a Winchester rifle or carbine, a Colt's 45 revolver, and a Bowie knife. Two cartridge belts, one for Winchester and one for revolver ammunition, completed his equipment, and so armed, he was ready to mount and ride. We live in the saddle and the sky is our roof, said the old rangers, and this is literally true. The rangers are perfect centaurs and almost live in the saddle. They take horse where they will and may arrest or search in any part of the state. There is very little of what a West Point graduate would call drill. A ranger is expected simply to be a good rider and a quick and accurate shot. Every one of them are skilled horsemen and crack shots. No crack cavalryman in any army could mount a horse more quickly or more expertly than a ranger and he can keep a constant stream of fire pouring from his carbine when his horse is going at top speed and hit the mark nine times out of ten. Should a ranger drop anything on the ground that he wants, he does not even check the speed of his horse, but bending from the saddle as if he were made of India rubber, he picks up the object in full gallop. While not on active duty, the rangers amuse themselves in various ways. Some play cards, others hunt, while the studious spend their time over books and good literature. Horse racing is popular, and the fastest horse in the company is soon spotted, for the rangers match their mounts one against the other. At night around their campfires, the men are constantly telling stories of their own or some comrade's adventures that put to shame all the inventions of the imaginative fiction writers. But when on duty... All this has changed. No pace is too quick, no task too difficult, or too hazardous for him. Night and day will the ranger trail his prey, through rain and shine, until the criminal is located and put behind the bars where he will not again molest or disturb peaceful citizens. For bravery and endurance and steadfast adherence to duty at all times, the ranger is in a class all to himself. Such was the old ranger, and such is the ranger of today. Is it surprising, then, that I was early attracted to the force and wished to join them in their open, joyous, and adventurous life? End of chapter 2 Read by Kevin Waters, Spring Hill, Florida, September the 27th, 2021